This is uh, Inksteads on CITR 101.9 FM. I'm talking to Dean Motter right now, and uh, Dean's work includes mainly known for Mr. X, but you also have a couple of uh, side things along the way. The um, Prisoner being one, the miniseries that came out right. late 80s, early 90s. Uh, the exact date. Let's see. That was, no, that was in the 80s. 80s. So. Yeah. With uh, Mark Asquith, formerly mm-hmm. of the... Uh, 
The Silver Snail Comic Store, am I right? That's right. There we go. And I believe he's with Science, the Science Channel in uh, Toronto now. Yeah. Yeah, he does all their, uh, a lot of programming stuff. He actually does some really neat documentaries I've seen that he's involved with. Yeah. So doing good work still. And then uh, Batman Night and Lives, as well as some periphery Mr. X material, uh, Terminal City and Electropolis. Right. I guess we'll start out with um, my own little introduction to Mr. X. I was working in a comic store, probably I think it was 94, and I found this beat-up copy of uh, the first four issues, the Hernandez run. Mm-hmm. And uh, it blew me away, and for years I tried to find more, and only over the last couple of years, before he started the reprints, I was able to track him down. Um, but at that time, it was also, I guess, uh, ubiquitous timing, because it was the same time that the Terminal City storyline came out. Well, Terminal City came out a couple years later. Okay. Uh, I mean, I'd left, uh, not only had I left Mr. X at that point, I finished The Prisoner, and uh, Terminal City was really a, an 80s uh, effort. Uh, and that's when I was actually uh, working on staff at DC Comics. Mm-hmm. as the manager of the creative services uh, department. And uh, they allowed us at that time to uh, freelance if we were... Uh, uh, Internally? If we had a following, if we had a, uh, so I could moonlight by doing uh, Terminal City. And that's uh, Shelley... Bond, uh, back then Shelley Roberg, approached uh, me because she'd been a big Mr. X fan. Wanted mm-hmm. to see if sh- we couldn't do something like that for for DC. So I was lucky enough that uh, I'd I'd met uh, Michael Lark when I was um, actually was a, uh, did a brief stint as a editorial art director at uh, Byron Price Visual Publication. Mm-hmm. They were known for doing a lot of science fiction, graphic novels, and art books. And I was I was actually in designing the uh, Raymond Chandler books. Uh, he'd had the license to adapt some of the Raymond Chandler stories, and uh, we came across Michael Lark, and that was one of his first things, other than some stuff for Caliber, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. So uh, that was uh, so we hit it off really well. And when DC asked me to do Terminal City, then it was. Uh, he was my my first my first choice. I could just uh, I could kind of see it not of him, and his sto- his style uh, improved uh, dramatically. I mean, it was already uh, a, you know a nice finish for things, but uh, improved dramatically for Terminal City. Mm-hmm. It was effort. yeah, like you, Terminal City. I kind of see is like the starting of his really solidified style. Yeah. Before that, it's still the the guy's early rough days yeah. and everyone has them yeah you'll find him in any cartoonist now i guess what i'm wondering about one of the things is for you was comics a first interest um destination or is design more your like what which do you kind of get drawn to first well it's a little hard to say i mean when i when i was uh, I mean, I've been interested in, you know, comic books my whole, you know, through my childhood and adolescence, and collected and read, and, uh, and even tried, you know, tried my hand way back in uh, in high school, you know, drawing cartoons for the, you know, for the school paper and things like that. And then when I got to college, 
I didn't know that there, you know, that there was really an opportunity to actually make any uh, any kind of a living uh, in the field, mm-hmm. um, unless you were, you know, unless you were a star. And even back then, the, all the stars that I were, you know, admired, you would hear horror stories of, you know, how badly they were doing. You know, here's in the stories of Wally Wood. And, oh, that's and, probably one of the most tragic of yeah. them all. But they were all, you know, all had similar uh, tales about the, uh, you know, their level of income. So I never really aspired to it so much as a hobby. Uh, I did, I did the comic comic pages for my uh, the college newspaper, and I moonlighted as well, or not moonlighted, but uh, I did sort of extracurricular. Uh, work with uh, an outfit, a magazine called Media 5, which was coming out of London, Ontario. It was a tabloid uh, fanzine, basically. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got pulled into, uh, since I was taking a design course at at the college there, I was pulled into uh, doing the layouts and designs for this, for Media 5 magazine. And uh, so I, I sort of came into the that uh, business of you know doing print production and print design uh, through that door as well as my college work. So, uh, and then uh, that just continued when I moved to Toronto. There was uh, Silver Snails. Well, Baca Books was the store of note back then. Mm-hmm. And when the uh, when Ron Van Leeuwen left the store uh, to open the Silver Snail. Uh, he dragged a lot of us, you know, <laughs> with him, <laughs> uh, uh, both in terms of clientele and and he started publishing the Andromeda comic book, mm-hmm. and that's where I met a lot of uh, my contacts because he was he had money and he was unafraid to license stories uh, by name authors like Arthur C. Clarke and Harlan Ellison and people like that. Uh, and I was able to uh, hook up with Ken Stacy and and uh, other uh, illustrators uh, and writers. And uh, sort of, I not only did I work for the the magazine, I being the art director and designer for that as well. So mm-hmm. uh, my design kept coming along with me. And my big my big effort was really to try to make the comics look as little like comics as possible. I mean, this is about the time that Heavy Metal Magazine and Byron Price were really the only ones doing sort of high-end production work as Mm -hmm. far as um, making the books look more European. And uh, if that's a correct description of it. (laughs) But that's... And so we we aspired to that. And uh, we were still pretty young and naive, so we were... You know, we were hitting and missing, and but we we did a lot of good good material back then. Who, who but that that then spun off. I uh, there was a comic book fan, um, you know, and a, uh, somebody we had known as a, a mutual customer. Uh, his name was Marty Herzog, and he had just gotten his, a job as uh, a creative services director at CBS Records in Canada. And I also aspired to do album covers all my for most of my college years. So he pulled pulled me into uh, the Canadian record business, which I then s- stayed in full time for several years. 
and I did comic books on the side, but nothing really uh, serious until Mr. X came along. Mm-hmm. So. Sacred and Profane was one of the was before Mr. X, though, right? Yeah, uh, and that was done. And first, we did that uh, while I was still in college, uh, or just out of college, as I recall. Uh, we did that for Star Reach mm-hmm. magazine, and uh, then Marvel Comics relicensed it, and the whole thing was uh, written and re-illustrated from scratch. And uh, hopefully, we're going to see a new edition of that next year. That's what Ken was mentioning. You guys Horse, were so. working on that. Yeah, so we're kind of excited about that, seeing it back in print. It's it's a tough one to get a hold of, and it suffered from some very uh, clumsy distribution moves. Uh, so this this will hopefully. Uh, but it was never, it was never collected by itself. Well, yeah, it was collected as oh, okay. uh, uh, Eclipse Comics collected it. Oh, okay, I did not know that. And they we they, uh, we did a nice oversized collection. But it was so badly printed, uh, and the fact is they left the dust jacket off the, uh, they shipped the dust jacket separately to the stores. Oh, jeez. paperback. So the cover was black with just the words, the sacred profane and our names on it, and then a, kind <laughs> of a black-on-black black, uh, symbol, ornament on the front. And uh, that's all they'd ever showed up in the stores, because the stores didn't want to be bothered to fold the dust covers onto their copies, so very few... Very few stores ever displayed it with the dust cover on it. And the dust cover was really quite striking. It was one of Ken's nicer illustrations at the time. And it was, uh, you know, it was colorful. It was space age. It was uh, everything that, you know, a good book cover should be. And it just got... Fell to the wayside. Just got trashed. So between that and the, the distribution at that time, that Eclipse was uh, still experimenting with was a little bit... Uh, a little bit underdeveloped. Mm-hmm. So it never the collection never got the uh, uh, the attention that we wanted. But like I said, we're we're on the road now to re repackaging it for for Dark Horse. So. What were some of the European uh, cartoons that s- influenced you or stuck out to you? Well, when I was uh, living in Canada, the uh, the you know in the years before Heavy Metal came out. Um, we were able to buy almost all the French and Belgium and German uh, magazines as part of the uh, uh, the fact that there was such a uh, sizable French readership mm-hmm. in Toronto and Montreal and that. So the, the magazines were being imported into the country under the, not through any comic book distributors, but through um, just through magazine distributors. And so there were a lot of imports like Metallic Long, uh, Pilo Magazine. Uh, you know the. Uh, I'm trying to think of some of the others, but they would also import the the albums by Philippe Julier and Mobius and uh, those people. So we got into that. That led us, you know, down the road to Tantan and Hergé and uh, people. L- so the Lucky Luke's. Yeah, yeah, the Lucky Luke's are definitely <laughs> on that as well. So we. You know, we were able to get the French editions of that. We, I had tons of those at a relatively, you know, they were relatively cheap. Uh, so that's, I mean, that's what the European, you know, that market was was not being exposed in the U.S. at all at that time. No. And it took Metallo long to actually 
get that uh, uh, that exposure for those. So. so you're able to read the original material in French. Yeah, and it was uh, I mean it was an eye opener mm -hmm. when you would see what they were reading over there that wasn't superheroes and it wasn't uh, uh, space opera and it wasn't uh, sword and sorcery. Uh, yeah, and and uh, horror stories. It was there was such a a, uh, a panoply of genres, you know, and the, the ones that I liked the best, the ones that I enjoyed the most were this either the ones that were very surreal like this mm -hmm. uh or the uh the ones that were very kind of gritty um you know like blueberry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't really so, get much grittier than blueberry. Yeah. It's so it was uh you know it, but it that led to, you know, uh being exposed to all all kinds of European uh Artists and you know that once the grapevine that started going as to you know who we who we liked and who we admired, it, it began stirring up uh, ideas in in all of our heads, all the artists uh, that uh, I was in touch with, and everybody had an aspiration to do their version of a European book. So everybody had their own mature readers uh, angle coming up, uh, and I was no different. I, I uh, I mean, one book that wasn't European, but that uh, I'd still uh, been following since the Warren days, you know, uh, and even before that, uh, The Spirit, and I mm -hmm. really wanted to do a spirit-like story or a spirit-like character, somebody that was that classic, who wasn't a costumed adventurer and wasn't, uh, it was kind of a little bit morally ambiguous, and uh, there was a science fiction angle to it, so... That's where Mr. X came from. It was the combination of being influenced by the, the European books and by Eisner. I never really thought about the Eisner influence, but it it makes sense to me, especially when you think of the way he designs the cities and how like everything's got to be really grand. Uh, it, it was definitely that. I mean, he was master of, of staging, and uh, it was... Uh, I was sharing the studio with, with Ken and Paul Ravash at the time, and we were all devouring uh, Will Eisner as, as uh, at, even at that time he'd established himself as the you know the the preeminent uh, authority graphic storytelling, uh, and we were you know, seeing what what that was all about, and we did a lot of uh, investigation into his writings and his work on the on the topic. And that's, again, where Mr. X came from, because uh, Paul and I started banging heads together about, oh, this had to be 82, I guess, or 83. And we spent like a, the better part of just back and forthing on the character and the city, and I would take him sketches or outlines, and he would bring me back, bring sketches back to me at the other end of the studio, and I'd go down and hover over him, and when uh, Vortex, uh, which was just starting up, uh, they were doing that small independent black and white book at the time as well, similar to Andromeda. And they wanted to do a color book uh, that would match that kind of European flavor. And, and at that time, the direct market was was going along pretty uh, pretty actively. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they saw the new opening for that and. You know, we spent uh, spent quite a while putting that project together. It was 
it was tricky and it was fraught with uh, you know <laughs> clashes of egos here and there. But uh, you know, it did come out, and everybody that uh, uh, was working on it was you know actively and happily working on it for for quite a while. So it's interesting. Um, it seems to me because I mean, you sort of you didn't even do the first storyline. Well, actually, I did. Uh, the first storyline was mine, but the first script was uh, Gilbert's. Okay. So he had he had the concept and the outline, so uh, his uh, his take on that. I think it was about a six page uh, outline I sent him. Okay. Uh, for what the storyline was, you know, he changed you know an amount of it to make it his own, and uh, I think even Jaime and Mario contributed other story elements to it as well so we you know his the name of his girlfriend changed the uh well the, the, the girlfriend is a very Jaime character yeah <laughs> so she suddenly had this Spanish name and Spanish <laughs> origin <laughs> you know which was fine at all but I did, I had had something completely different in mind I had a very uh kind of a mousy uh girlfriend who was a waitress that you know and she was the only normal person in the in the entire city, everybody else was bent out of shape because of the way the city was designed. So I've tried to to uh, retain that element as well as the Hernandez element in the new Mister X series. Mm-hmm. Been working on. So she's a little bit of both of those. She's a little bit of the Hernandez Mercedes, and she's a little bit of the character I originally envisioned. I kind of get this feeling that the Mr. X universe is something where creators can go and play with elements and do their own little stories using parts. Well, we did we did experiment with that. We had a mm-hmm. backup feature in the comics uh, called Tales from Somnopolis, and uh, th- those were little little vignettes. It could be two pages, page four pages, and we had Ty Templeton do one, and uh, Bravosh did one. And I forget who all else. Uh, Gilbert and Mario Seth did. did one. Yeah, Gilbert uh, did a couple. So, uh, yeah, it was a, it was definitely set up as a uh, a big city where there could be a lot of stories. So, uh, and a lot of characters. And I'd always I'd always seen it that way, but it was you know it was like Will Eisner's Central City. So yeah, uh, it would have a lot of places in it. The uh, but the, I mean, what was instrumental in getting that vision together was actually working with Paul, because Paul had, he was very detail-oriented, still is, um, and he, you know, he would do endless sketches and you know, volumes of just buildings and alleyways and rooftops and all kinds of, you know, Eisner-esque uh, vis- And he was, uh, and that, that, that inspired me to, you know, explore the character and the society a little bit more so he went from being a you know kind of a two-bit gumshoe in in fritz lang's metropolis to being a you know the character he became which was a lot more uh like i say morally ambiguous a little uh a little more sinister a little uh not not really in the job of solving crimes but sort of in the job of of repairing the city and getting himself out of the messes that you know, he had sort of created uh, de facto himself. So, But he's not the key character. 
that's the thing I find interesting. Like, it, it he kind of creates a focal point, but he's, in a lot of ways, periphery to everything else that's going on, and kind of in a way just plays a. He's kind of like the watcher, for lack of a better term. Well, in yeah, in some ways, uh, as as the series evolved, it, it became more and more important that he was uh, he was responsible for the the city being the way it was. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the people in the city being the way they were, that somehow it all came back to him by some means or other. And his his go- his role was to set about to try to correct that. He was never successful at. He was only successful at uh, getting himself into a jam <laughs> and then getting himself out. And I I rather liked the way that that developed. That was kind of a serendipity of the series. And that's what I tried to do in the new series, was reconcentrate on that idea of him, uh, again, not being real uh, uh, heroic or real centralized, but having the, he had the right intention. They're all guilt-driven, and, uh, and since he was, you know, suffering from permanent insomnia, it was, his judgment was always suspect, uh, as was uh, his identity, so... So we'll be seeing, hopefully, I'm just in the middle of uh, negotiating an, uh, another Mr. X miniseries for next year. Okay. And, in fact, there were uh, two episodes from that that just that were posted on Dark uh, MySpace page uh, a month or two ago. So, uh, so there were, you know, the new chapters uh, were, are, were coming up, so... And then th- that'll, of course, be collected into a book as well, so, with any luck, so. In time. Yeah. One of the interesting things I find is the whole maddening aspect of the city. And um, how that, and how, like, you've kind of explored it further, especially, like, in Electropolis, where you have Radiant City being shut down, basically. Right at that point, because of the madness. Well, my my big concept for for that was really that once once we saw what the city looked like and we we knew that, that the the uh, our protagonist was going to be the craziest in town and uh, his girlfriend was going to be the only sane person in town uh, that the that the range of of uh, Disorders would be something else, but I mean, there had been a you know a fair amount of uh, research we had done on insomnia and you know certain psychoses that uh, can breed in in urban areas. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to make that a little bit more surreal and not know how the how it worked, but somehow know that the you know the architecture itself was the thing that was uh, our big villain. And it, it was the thing that was that was always going to be there. Mm-hmm. So. And methamphetamines play yeah. such a role too. Yeah, we went through quite a quite a an apothecary of <laughs> of fictional drugs. <coughs> that must have been fun making up the names. It was, and it still is. I mean, <laughs> I'm still doing that with the current. So we had metamorphine, which changed your appearance. Uh, we had, of course, we had uh, insomnolin, which, you know, 
uh, would keep you awake 24 hours a day unless you stop taking it and then you go to sleep permanently, which was Mr. X's drug of choice. Uh, uh, Methuselah's, which would turn 100 years old instantly, you know, uh, all kinds of crazy stuff. And like I said, there's still stuff coming on. Tell me about um, the role that Ayn Rand plays within Mr. X. Well, there's a, a couple of um, dimensions to that. The, uh, I mean, the obvious ones are, you know, Fountainhead and, uh, and Atlas Shrugged. Those are the two books that I uh, remember reading in college and probably were the germs of the idea of what a, what a utopian society would be designed like and then what it would end up ultimately looking like mm-hmm. and how broad the gap is between those things so between that and uh, Brave New World's Brave, Brave New World and um, and Metropolis in 1984 uh, all those kind of antique visions of the future became, uh, not only a, a good source of material that nobody had actually been to mm-hmm. Uh, with any real exposure, I think Shoyton is the only person I can think of that really explored that uh, in that way. Mobius to a lesser degree, but uh, but it was uh, Anne Rand. It was it was her idea of how the how what role the individual would play in society as a as a philosophical element, mm-hmm. and especially in Atlas Shrugged, how how disastrous the whole thing becomes. Uh, but there, and, but there was also the visuals that those those uh, novels and even the film, the Fountainhead, you know, had a certain amount of influence in in the work as well. The uh, the stress on architecture being uh, uh, kind of this this faceless thing or this thing any uh, regard for uh, individuals, but regard for the entire society. That was the greater its greater role, which led, of course, all the all the follies that uh, that Howard Work encountered mm-hmm. <laughs> during his during his misadventure. So it's interesting the uh, influence that that Rand has had, even within comics itself. It is, and it's. I think it's even coming back to this day. You know, I know when. Uh, when I visited the filming of the first Tim Burton Batman film, we visited the set in uh, in England. When I was over there for a convention, we were invited to to go on set as part of DC's entourage. And mm-hmm. it, was, it was the set for the downtown Gotham City and uh, Main Street, and it was just mind blowing the how how much it resembled a what what I had been envisioning and Paul had been drawing and. <laughs> um, for Mr. X, we said, "Could you please leave this set standing for a couple of years while we get our movie act together?" Um, but when I met the uh, the art director uh, Anton first, and I remember he, besides being a Mr. X fan himself, and having, he said, "Oh yeah, we have all the Mr. X comics over in the art department." <laughs> he looked like he looked like Mr. X only with hair, the black coat, tiny dark rim, you know, circular glasses. Uh, he had kind of longish, greasy hair from the fact they were working around the clock for so long uh, to get the movie 
up and you know out on time and he just seemed like <laughs> like a real life mr x uh and he he mentioned Ayn rand uh, a number of times as well as orwell uh he was a big fan of 1980 so mm-hmm. this was uh you know it's all all these uh elements were coming together sort of in various forms you know and these influences were being felt uh, you know, in that business, uh, right about that time. I think that was also the uh, at that time just the you know the the influ- influence that a certain certain music had. The you know the new wave synth pop was just sort of coming into, and the uh, there were enough uh, sort of semi pretentious bands coming out of England. <laughs> That had aspirations to music as architecture. So yeah, you know, OMD and Human League and Kraftwerk and well, yeah, and I was going to so say had all that kind of Aryan, Lemire period philosophy sort of weaving its way into the uh, uh, into the the, uh, the medium. And you also had the opposite with bands like Ansel and Neubauten, who were kind of rejecting that in some ways too. Yeah. That's my own little mm-hmm. interest of that time. I'm a big fan yeah. of a lot of those bands. It's well, like I say, it, it was even more in their their album covers mm-hmm. and and the, their posters. And if you ever saw Kraftwerk on stage, and I early, have <laughs> in their early days. Oh yeah, or OMD on their early days. I mean, the stage looked like a uh, you know a set from uh, Things to Come or something. It didn't, you know, <laughs> it didn't look like a rock band set. Uh, you know, look like a bunch of scientists uh, experimenting with uh, human cloning research or something. So. Now, one thing I'm curious about with Mr. X, and you don't have to comment on this if you don't want to, but it seems right. like there's a bit of a, and you used the term folly before, of the whole, I guess, uh, intellectual property aspect of it. For a time, well, there was, and there's still um, there's still some soft spots in the in the ownership issue. But uh, at the time, the you know uh, from the time it was uh, conceived of till the time you know they ceased publishing, it was uh, was uh, it was the copyright was going to be managed by the the original publisher. Mm-hmm. It was never going to be uh, owned by anybody uh, other than Vortex Comics until such time as they didn't want to exploit it anymore, and then it was to return to uh, to my ownership. So that was our uh, our agreement when we at the outset. Yeah. Uh, now, for the years, there were a number of you know, like any small business, there were a number of missteps that both they made and the contributors made and I made and we all you know we all had falling fallings out at some point or other but we all eventually shook hands and buried the hatchet and everything so uh, so right now the ownership uh, well it's still the original material from the, those issues uh, the copyrights are still owned by the all the new material is owned by me so okay uh, so we've and we've had a very, uh, very amiable, very friendly uh, relationship on that front. 
Is that We've one of the all grown up quite a lot since those days? But. Was that one of the reasons why it took so long to get the material back in print? Um, oh, that's a good question. The getting the material back in print was largely when we got it back in print under at Byron Price mm -hmm. in iBooks in the two paperback editions the that collected the whole color run uh, and then some other material. Uh, Sadly, when iBooks went under, most of their inventory was then liquidated um, or destroyed or whatever. So there's very, you know, there wasn't a lot. There was just what, what people had in their warehouses of, yeah. of that material. And it was still, it was becoming harder and harder to find because it really didn't have any uh, display uh, capability the way, it was, the way it had been packaged. So the, uh, when it came time to... Uh, I, I actually approached uh, Dark Horse with the idea of doing uh, an Electropolis collection because it hadn't been collected. Yeah. Uh, and they said, well, you know what, if we could do uh, a Mr. X collection and make an Electropolis book that, you know, becomes, so it's not an orphan. It's not yeah. just because Electropolis has a little, some cameos by Mr. X in it. Um, and I said, well, let's see what we can do. And uh, I talked to uh, Vortex. They were uh, eager to see it done properly. So the, you know, Dark Horse went back and didn't, didn't even use the film that uh, that iBook uh, created. They shot all their, uh, they rescanned all the books uh, from the original comics, had them retouched and uh, restored mm -hmm. and the archive, archive came out and it looked beautiful I mean, it was just a and at that time there was fortunately there was enough of a market in these uh, these big giant hardcover bricks as they <laughs> call them um, you know and everybody was they were all coming out with, uh, with Magnus the Robot Fighter or you know old DC properties that nobody had heard of for years or you know, everybody had hard covers of something coming out. So this was a, this actually, you know, we were there at the right time, in the right place, to get that out. And then, that of course led to them to wanting to commission new um, Mr. X material. So, is it comfort? Is it like getting? Ourselves. Is it like getting back on a bicycle, revisiting it? It is. And the nice thing is, that sort of retelling the story. It's a, kind of a reboot. It's not. It's not the further adventures of it's, it's no. You kind of touch back up to the original idea as I saw it back then, but with the uh, the benefit of some years in between. So it's it's uh, and it's there for people that can't afford a ninety dollar book uh, and would like to you know read the story. Mm -hmm. And it makes a little more sense now. And it's uh, uh, it's not as disjointed as as it was. Uh, in our original run, mm -hmm. as much as I loved the original run, it did. It was by a much younger man, <laughs> <laughs> or much, by much younger staff. Let's put it that way. I was going to say because that was uh, Seth was pretty young at that point when he yeah uh, and yeah he made an amazing transition just in a few issues that uh, I worked on with him mm -hmm. went from being uh, he was hired because basically he was anxious to do it and he was the only person that uh, we had in our current orbit. Uh, of artists uh, around Toronto that uh, was ready to do whatever it took to to break in 
you know, there, there were because there were business problems with Vortex at the time, a lot of people were just reluctant to get involved. But he went from being uh, a little crude or a little clumsy in his first issue or two to being quite stylized, quite elegant in his, in his, his final issues. Mm-hmm. It's I find it really fascinating because, I mean, he's definitely... He's removed himself from that past, but mm-hmm. even in his own work, right? He, he's doing this like elaborate town, these sculptures, which kind of take visible cues from that work as well. Right. That's yeah, I'm quite, uh, I'm quite proud of Seth uh, and how far he's come and what a name he's made for himself. Yeah. From from that uh, from that enterprise. He's uh, one of Canada's. Uh, most important right now, it seems like. Yeah, one of the national treasures. <laughs> and we're we're proud to have him. Yeah, one of Guelph's sons. So your other, I mean, the, the other two big pieces of work you have, and there's a prisoner, and then there's also the Batman work, and because right. I kind of feel the Terminal City kind of goes in with all the other work with the Mister X. Yeah, well, Terminal City, Mister X, and Electropolis are all part of a universe. Moderverse or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> it's it's my tri city area. You know, it's three cities that exist near each other and all have a common. Even though the stories are very different in nature, they're all they're they have a lot of common uh, commonality between them. What do you think it is about Mister X that really struck a chord with cartoonists? Because I was looking through the uh, A one special. Well, I. Th- I think I mean I've talked to different people about this and tried to find that out myself. Um, I think he's uh, part of it is that just he's a uh, graphically he's an original looking character. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, he's taken some elements from Dick Tracy and some elements from uh, the Spirit and all that, and you know, and then some elements from Dracula, Nosferatu, and things like that, and sort of melded them. They were just molded into they became this this character that was uh, uh, just unique and very easy to draw very graphic uh, the fact that he looks like the Grim Reaper on some occasions is you know I think has a lot to do with the subliminal appeal of the character mm-hmm. but I think that's that's what fascinated most people and there's just something archetypal about the uh, it's almost Raymond Chandler esque of the you know the 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 lone man against the city and you know roaming the streets and uh, fighting for his life and trying to save his girl or the damsel in distress. It, is, it had you know it had it played with a lot of archetypes in a very small uh, small space you might say, and I think that's. That's what impressed a lot of people, but uh, I mean, to this day, there's st- I've got I've got sketches of him by uh, you know a number of people that uh, you know that did uh, our guest covers and guest pinups and uh, even some that never saw print uh, that are quite striking. So. Mm-hmm. Like Dave McKee, and it really struck a chord with him. I think yeah, of one of the it, most uh, nuanced. Yeah, he was uh, definitely he came. And uh, he and Neil produced, I think, one of the best Mr. X stories we we published, which mm-hmm. is the black and white uh, uh, 
thing for A1. And we re reprinted that in the Mr. X archives in the big book. I think it was also uh, published in the big Vanguard special, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, it was. It was published yeah, on the edge, I think it was. Yeah. yeah. Kind of Baron Story esque yeah. collection. Yeah. Now, you go from Mr. X to doing some Batman work, the mm -hmm. nine lives he did with uh, Michael Lark, who, uh, in a lot of ways, is anything but ambiguous in his, uh, I guess, intentions. For uh, how do you mean? I'm oh, like Mr. X, I mean, it's more of a vague character that, you know, is up to oh, the yeah. person. And, I mean... Well, this is always a bit of a satire. Yeah. Uh, and when I when we decided to do the Batman story, I really wanted to do a legitimate noir story that mm -hmm. was actually uh, that may it may have uh, homages here and there to to Hammett or Chandler or uh, who else? Well, the others. Uh, <laughs> it was Stanley Gardner and people like that. Um, it may have a just there, but it was never uh, intended to be a pastiche or a, uh, a burlesque, the, the same way that Mr. X was. And Mr. X probably had more in common with American Flag than it did with, uh, you know, the, the real film noir yeah. uh, kinds of properties. So we wanted to do a good, hard-boiled crime story, where it was a story more instead of a, a story about you know heroes and villains, it was more a story about desperate people in finding themselves in desperate uh, situations and uh, you know to what lengths they were to go to or had to go to to, to get out of those so that was the, that was the theme I always liked about the noir stories was that there was there were never really a clear right and wrong when you take the Maltese Falcon or something like that there's nobody in that, that that's likable mm -hmm. even you know uh, the the, uh, the Humphrey Bogart character, you know, when he when he turns over the girl at the end of the film to the cops, <laughs> not his best moment, but uh, <laughs> nothing heroic about that. But um, so that's what I liked about those things. They were just about flawed characters. With uh, and I want I really wanted to do nice period piece. Yeah. So uh, what was the choice with the uh, the widescreen? Oh, that was an right. idea I had for a book years ago. I was trying to do a, a book on the Batcave, and I wanted to do it as a landscape format book because of the nature of the cave, mm -hmm. you know. And then I had an idea for how to actually do the cover so that you could rotate the I'm cover doing it in 90 degrees and display it as a, a, a standard book, and it would still make sense. So we, I lifted that idea from that old, my old mm -hmm. story about the Batcave. I'd done a story with the with Richard Bruning on the origin of the Batcave, how mm -hmm. how one man and his butler were able to retrofit an entire <laughs> cavern system with a, you know with a mainframe computer and tiled floors and a secret exit and a you know uh, an auto body yeah shop a and vast a collection <laughs> of of cars <laughs> yeah so I, I, I we came up with a, a a premise that made sense that how he was able to do this by funneling funds from a Mm -hmm. From Wayne Industries, various uh, uh, outfits, and it's 
it's funny that that idea sort of kind of made its way into the the new Batman films. But it was an obvious idea. It wasn't like uh, it didn't take much to actually think that that's the only way that, that something like that could come about. But in any, anyway, to answer your question, that's really where the, the idea of the landscape uh, book came from. And I, I like the idea that it was a uh, uh, a different format. It gave Michael a lot of a lot of uh, room to have some fun. Mm-hmm. Well, I think any chance to allow the artist to play a little more. Mm-hmm. Is always good. Yeah. You're also you were working on another Batman story. Well, I did a small Batman story for uh, Batman Black and White, mm-hmm. the Gargoyles of Gotham, which I wanted to expand into a, a bigger story book. Uh, and they commissioned us to do. Uh, it was going to be Paul Ravash and myself doing the book, and they commissioned us to do that. And then at the last minute, they pulled the plug because they had too much Batman inventory. <laughs> and, uh, they said, you know, we'll pay for what you've done. And uh, it was a yeah. big disappointment for for both of us. More for Paul, because he hadn't done anything. He'd, he'd just gotten, you know, a couple of scripts to read. So, uh, and I, I, I always thought that it was a missed opportunity, because there's nothing more ubiquitous than gargoyles in Gotham City and a whole book that actually would explore them. Mm-hmm. And explain them to a degree would have been interesting, but maybe someday. I haven't given up hope on that completely yet. Well, uh, there's always room yeah. for new Batman stories. But the one, uh, uh, I mean, Paul and I finally got to work together last year. Finally, after <laughs> after all these years, we we Paul and I finally have a story in print because after all the work we've collaborated on over the years, very little it's ever ever seen the light of day and nothing's ever been finished that we worked on together uh, you know Paul would help develop uh, or you know uh, we'd bounce ideas off you but we got to do it, uh, an issue of the spirit oh okay uh, I think it was number 20 and mm-hmm. uh, that was just a delight to actually see Paul uh, bring my words to life on that especially for that property it was it was uh, it was an honor. I only regret regret that uh, Uncle Will never got to see it. So, and still getting the chance to play is always good. Yeah. What is it like for you? Because um, illustrating your own work is more of a recent thing, isn't it? Um, like you did all the posters and the um, you know the concept, Mister X stuff, but. A lot of your work is illustrated by someone else. Yeah, well, there are a couple reasons for that. One, uh, one is that I really enjoyed, I, I really enjoyed collaborating with the right people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but the other is that this work, this nature of work, is so labor intensive that you can easily get burned out if if you're going to and write, draw, color, letter the whole book. As I found in doing this new Mister X stuff, it's you can get burned out pretty. Uh, pretty easily. You need to take, uh, get some time away from just concentrating on the same thing over and over again. And like I say, and it's a solitary effort. You're not like in an office with some people where you get to spend any time, you know, kibitzing about anything. No. There's no bullpen or anything. Uh, so I prefer, 
I kind of prefer to work with other people. Uh, the, the reason I did Mr. X the way I did is that I really wanted to demonstrate what the character could be, would be, and should be. And uh, God willing, if there's a uh, interest in a motion picture or television deal, that they could go from this instead of having to read through, you know, 300 pages of the archive edition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they would get a truer image of in a clearer image of what the character and story were about. So, um, so illustrating is yeah. I still I, I enjoy doing it, but it's it's labor intensive. I'm just finishing. Uh, I just finished two projects for Marvel. Um, one of which was Dominic Fortune, uh, and that was a uh, six-part series. That's I think it's it may be up now, but it was supposed to be on their download downloaded comic space. Oh, okay. And that'll also be printed in their uh, their upcoming Dominic Fortune book that Chaikin's doing. And the uh, and the other thing I did was a Wolverine story with, and both of these stories I did with uh, a fellow named Greg Scott, who I came across a couple of years ago, and we've been working together. He's very much in in the Alex Toth, uh, Michael Lark uh, style. I think he used to work for Neil Adams. Uh, the continuity studios, and That's he's a, a delight to work with, and uh, and his work is gorgeous. It's just, uh, and both of those should be, uh, like I said, the, the uploaded fortune story should be up either now or the beginning of the year. And I don't know exactly when the Wolverine book is coming out, but it should be out later, sometime during the course of the year. So that's uh, probably quite in the spring. Quite different schools, the Neil Adams to the Alex Toth. What's that? <laughs> Quite different schools of influence from Neil Adams to the Alex Toth. Yeah. One uh, is kind of over-rendered and one is under-rendered. <laughs> yeah. Well, he has a very nice sort of graphic uh, mm-hmm. approach that looks great in black and white and with the right colorist looks looks super. Um, and he does great realistic material. So yeah. this uh, whole Dominic Fortune story takes place in 1937. And we visit the Marvel Universe uh, in thirty. So we see Berlin, we see Latveria, we see the Savage Land, we see uh, the Wakanda nation, and all these uh, sort of ge- geographic locations for this story. And it's uh, and he did just a great job of drawing. You know, the Hindenburgs in there, the Orient Express is in there. It's, it's chock full of uh, nice historical lifts mm-hmm. and. Uh, it was fun doing that. It's fun worlds to play in, and it's funny yeah. that you're doing the the Dominic Fortune because I mean, uh, Chaykin himself did that great uh, Batman story that takes place in the 30s. Yeah, yeah. And you guys have definite aesthetic crossovers. Well, Chaykin's always been. Uh, we've always been sort of mutual admiration society, so he's mm-hmm. been kind enough to provide the introduction for the Mr. X collection uh, some covers uh, from time to time quotes you know he's always he's always a good go-to guy for me anyway Mm -hmm. I've heard uh, good things about him and curmudgingly things well I think any good comic book artist that's working these days (laughs) has to be a bit of a curmudgeon (laughs) and I think uh, and he's been at it long enough he's he's earned his uh, he's earned the right to <laughs> my f- my favorite story is this one uh, publisher went up just to not to ask about just at a comic convention going up just to say 
you know how much he likes his work and he got waved off of a level of disinterest and you're like you know it's kind of complimenting when Howard Chaykin gives you the cold shoulder <laughs> it's kind of like yeah I suppose <laughs> you don't expect less <laughs> yeah um, well thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today Dean my pleasure it was uh, a thanks for the interest I've been uh, like I said I've been a fan for years and I've even uh, got all my Mr. X's and Terminal Cities and Electropolis bound into a a big book oh nice that I even got a little sketch in by Seth a couple of years ago oh well so. maybe if I see you or if you want to email me your address I'll uh, I'll get you one <laughs> stick it in there somehow there we go that would be marvelous thank you so much Dean okay
Thank you.